0: to Real Trail Talk. I am Donovan D'Souza from The Long Way's Better. And I'm
1: Mark Pybus from The Life of Pi. Welcome to episode four. The topic today will be a Q&A session and we're also going to talk about Outdoors October, which is an initiative run by Outdoors WA to get people out and about and active. Um, doesn't have to be trail related, but obviously a great way to get outdoors is to hit the trails um, Donovan, what have you been doing for Outdoors October?
0: I was diagnosed with plantar fasciitis last week, so I'm taking it easy as per my physio's uh, preference. He, he, did, he did say, I think you're going to go out anyway, aren't you? I said, yeah, probably. But I, you know, I am trying to, to give it a bit of a rest. But before that, um, Melissa and I did the Cape to Cape, which was a really amazing walk. And after the Cape to Cape, I went to the Stirling Range with you, Mark. And we uh, attempted the Stirling Ridge walk.
1: Yes, unsuccessfully, but we'll talk about that later. So for me,
0: outdoors October,
1: I had a two-week block where I basically went on a road trip. So I had twenty odd um, hikes planned over the two weeks. Um, <laughs> very, trying...
0: very ambitious. Yeah,
1: I did this last year as so well. I got over ambitious and then hit issues. And this year was exactly the same <laughs> as well. Um, so we had our, our issues with the Stirling Ridge walk. And then my car decided that it wasn't going to work properly, so that kind of put a dampener on things. I still managed to get outside and enjoy quite a few trails, just not as many as I expected.
0: A lot of those you'll be able to read on the blog in the coming few weeks. Yeah, looking forward to seeing what you think about some of those walks. Okay, so let's get started looking at some of these questions. What's the first one we have, Mark?
1: Thanks to Wendy off the email. She asks, my mates are heading to Tassie to do a four-day trail at the end of October. Any tips and suggestions on food to pack for a multi-day adventure without feeling like you're carrying a ton of books? Now, this one comes up a lot because mm. um, obviously what you carry affects your experience quite a lot and you obviously don't want to be carrying cans of food And but you also want to eat nice on the trail. So, yeah, I know you eat quite well on the trail because you are a foodie and you enjoy your food. <laughs> Do you want to give some tips on, on some recipes that you have?
0: Yeah, so what what we do for breakfast, we generally have either oats or a cliff bar or muesli bars. Generally, that keeps things quite light. Oats are, is obviously the lightest, but then also if you are trying to get out of camp fast, it takes time and there's cleaning. So sometimes we, if we're in a hurry, we just go stuff it, muesli bars it is. And then for lunch, we do tuna to go, which is made by John West. They do these little sachets and I'm not, <laughs> not, sponsored. not sponsored, but I, I do really enjoy their products because it, it, it makes it very, very easy. And also I don't like my crackers to be crushed and we used to buy them individually and always for some reason it would be like, you drop your bag and oh no, all our crackers are crushed, but these tend to last. So we generally have those and the snacks. Which are actually pretty good because you're getting carbs, fats, and uh, protein from the fish. Yep. That's generally is our favourite kind of lunch. Although we're starting to get a bit tired of eating that every day. Um, and then for dinners, we either do dehydrated meals, or if we can't be bothered, the backcountry meals. Which some of them are great, some of them are not so great. Yeah, so that's what we generally do. And we find that that keeps things light enough to be enjoyable. And we've done eight-day hikes with that as our as our food supply.
1: Yeah. So with the dehydrated meals, uh, what kind of recipes do you prefer?
0: I generally prefer to do sort of ones that... Some people do every little bit and then they rehydrate it. I prefer to cook the whole thing as if it's an actual meal and then dehydrate them. And then I try to work out the ratio of how much water has it you know, say it weighed five hundred grams to begin with, how much it weighed after. Generally add about an extra ten percent of water. And that seems to work. And pastas and rice tend to be good. Mince tends to be good. You've, you've had a lot of experience with, you've tried done it a few times, haven't you?
1: Yeah, so I had to borrow a dehydrator from my brother-in-law which then decided to pack up the heating element. So I've just done mine in the oven which is probably the, the best way to do it if you're just starting out. Mm. But I find that any meal that you cook at home, it can be easily adapted to the trail. Um, so lots of curries, lots of pastas. The key tip is to keep everything small Um, mince is great with this and you want low-fat mince as well so like a kangaroo or a turkey um, beef mince if you can get the lean stuff's quite good Mm. it just gives you that extra kind of something to look forward to at the end of the day because there's nothing worse than getting to camp and i've got two minute noodles or i've got continental pasta or something it just doesn't quite hit the spot sometimes so dehydrated meals especially doing it yourself is very rewarding yeah and also, I mean, it does take a bit of time, but it also is worth it because those backcountry meals are not cheap.
0: N- no, they they are like what twelve or fourteen dollars for the the doubles. Because like re- really, I find the the ones are not enough and the twos are too much. Yeah which is always, it's like, oh, why can't it just be one and a half?
1: Yeah, and then you figure <laughs> while well, you're hiking, you're burning a lot of calories. So you usually go for the twos, but then once you've rehydrated and you're looking at it and you're like, oh, I've got to carry this out. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, and they can so some of them can be almost two-filling. Like you're like, oh, God, why didn't I just get the one? But then if you, whenever I've had the one, I've just thought, this is not enough food, <laughs> I'm still hungry. yeah Yeah, I agree. So that's why it's great to do
1: your own meals is because you can portion them out and then dehydrate them. It's yeah, not an easy um, option, as I've said, but it's very tasty at the end of the day to
0: have something like that. Definitely. And I think one of the things that maybe we should explain is the reason why you go low-fat is because the food can go rancid, and that's the main reason why you're trying to avoid the higher-fat foods because it, if it oxygenates, it can be uh, not a nice experience to eat. Yeah, and the same goes for oils. Try
1: and use... as little amount of oil as you can um, mm. just because it'll keep longer and if you want to get into the the pro setup then you can buy a vacuum sealer and that adds life to it because there's not as much water vapor and air to make everything go bad and then obviously putting in the freezer adds a lot more time to your your hiking meals as well exactly
0: and I think of the back countries I'd say that the spaghetti bolognese would you've had that as well have you no I've not tried that one it's one of the better ones. On the other hand i think beef and pasta hot pot was my least favorite and Mm. you had the cooked breakfast that didn't look very
1: no the cooked breakfast it sounds really (laughs) awesome you've got some potato hash and bacon bits and some beans as well but it just does not it it looks terrible and it tastes (laughs) average (laughs) Um, but yeah my favorite of the backcountry meals would probably have to be the lamb and vegetables yeah it's a, a nice hint of mint and the vegetables are well done. Um, one tip is to really stir the mashed potato because it gets
0: quite powdery if you haven't mixed it in properly. How much weight do you reckon that is per day? That's probably... Ooh. So I think the back countries, are they like 180 or 200?
1: Yeah, so that's probably what I would have for my own dehydrator meals as well. So then you add in a couple of Cliff bars or muesli bars and there's another 150
0: grams. I think I weighed the uh, combination of the Snack and tuna to go at 110 grams. Yeah. So that's pretty good. Yeah. And breakfast, I
1: mean, you've got muesli or, and especially adding powdered milk to that helps um, quite a lot. There's probably another 100 or 150, 200 grams. So it's, it's really not a lot of weight per day in food. So the difference between hiking for two days and seven days is not much in the end. Yeah. And you're also consuming as you go, so your pack will get lighter.
0: Exactly. So I hope that answers the question regarding food. Um, Maybe we'll move on to question number two.
1: Yeah, so Mark, also from the email, has asked, he would love a discussion on compass navigation. Is it useful hiking in and around Perth? And if it is useful, what's the best way to learn? I think this is really relevant nowadays with GPS coming more into the fore, because I think the skills of having a, a map and a compass are
0: not as prevalent as they used to be. Yeah, I know that Michelle from Walking 2 by 2 shout out Michelle, feels really strongly about this, and she encountered a number of issues when she did her Bibleman track end-to-end, where people, well, there, there were some pretty bad deviations in place, where I, I was there and I saw that the signs were not pointing very clearly as to where to go, and in those sort of circumstances... You know, generally the Bibleman's an easy track to follow, mm-hmm. but when those things happen, it is useful to know what to do. And a lot of people didn't know what to do when they got lost.
1: Yeah, I feel like if you're gonna use a GPS, you have to back that up with not only having the map, but knowing how to read it and navigate as well. Um, I think a strong sense of direction while you're out there is also a must, like knowing what time of day it is where the sun is in relation to west so obviously winter it's going to be more northwest than west Mm. and just having that kind of bearing on where you are um i know when i did a multi-day section the map only came out every now and then but i could check it against the gps to say i've got this long to go until i reach this point and then you know i'm pointing roughly the right direction so you know if i did lose a marker i would know where i was
0: yeah I think that that's, you know, being able to read a map is really important. When we did our Cape to Cape walk, there was a day where Alyssa was c- considering pulling out because of um, of back pain. Yeah. But looking at the map, we were we were able to look at the contour lines and say, "Well, actually, if you look at it, it's mostly downhill and it's quite steeply downhill, but then the ascent out of the gully which was um Bujinap Brook where the that bridge is and the, yep, the 300 stairs." 300. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 300 stairs and because of that we were able to make uh, an informed decision about whether she should continue because if it had been the other way around i think she may have pulled out yeah. and that really came down to looking at a map understanding what it said and going yeah we can do this
1: yeah and in terms of understanding the map your best place to start is the bushwalking clubs around Perth, because they are your old school bushwalkers that have a map and a compass and then they march off into the bush mm. that's it there's no marked trails there's no gps for them and although they do use gps it's old school scouts find your way using a compass kind of thing so if you are interested in learning how to read a map and use a compass then definitely contact the bushwalking clubs
0: yeah and i think there's a guy from Bibbleman track who does some get lost with steve is yes it?
1: it is he runs yeah i've heard good things about steve and the classes he runs so yeah, it's always a good thing to not know where you are but then have the confidence to get to
0: where you want to be yes definitely um actually speaking of you you, you were saying about you know being able to back up gps with a compass we did the wongong gorge walk that you've also done mm-hmm. um, which is a walk gps walk and the first time we did it we didn't we just referred to the gps and didn't get a compass out and we found we just kept wandering off course all the time whereas as soon as we got the compass out and just made sure we oriented ourselves the right way it really made such a difference for our enjoyment of that walk
1: yeah and one thing the gps does not have going for it is i've had this situation before i was trying to find a new place wasn't on trail and it started to pour down quite heavily. And being a touch screen on my phone where the (laughs) gps was it was so wet i couldn't unlock it so i didn't know where i was um i looked at it before it kind of got um, waterlogged so i knew roughly where i was and i needed to head west so obviously with no sun out because it was pouring down with rain i had my little compass with me and pointed myself in the right direction and found the trail again it's just it's not a great thing to rely on technology like that especially with how fickle technology can
0: be yes definitely so i hope so i hope that answers the question regarding gps and compass um uh, question number three mark question number three
1: is all about kids and hiking there's actually two questions come from mark again on the email uh suggestions for multi-day hikes to get the kids started and leanne from way too much coffee asks ideas of a nice hike either day or overnight hike to introduce kids to the trails in either the Perth or the Southwest so I think we might tackle getting the kids out on overnight hikes first Mm. Um, we'll do this the backwards way (laughs) Um, obviously the Billman track has quite a few campsites that are easily accessible from access points so would you want to list a few of the ones that you would recommend
0: Yeah, I guess the easy ones are generally the ones near Perth. So like Hewitt's Hills, not hard to get to, or Ball Creek. Scenery on the walk is a bit not great, but it's very short. So if you're talking, I'm talking like, you know, three, five kilometer walks. So you can make it easy if you're with really young kids and the terrain is not too hard getting to those. The really nice ones, I think, because I think it is important if you're taking kids out to see things, it has to also be spectacular because if it is, then they're going to want to come out again. Yeah. So something like Mount Cook has really good um, access that's not too long. Monat Nox, probably Monat Knox, is maybe easier to get to if you get in from Randall Road. Yeah. Uh, it's quite flat to there, but then I guess the, the Monat Knox are not flat. The walking's a bit harder, but the enjoyable aspects of it might be what gets the kids to want to be out there.
1: Yeah, and I think also bribing the kids with maybe we'll have a campfire with marshmallows and, you know, you get to set up your tent and it'll be be cool. I think that will keep them going. And if you pick the right time of year, there's plenty of wildflowers around to stop and have a look at because, you know, they're going to get tired and if you make them carry their own stuff, they're going to get even tired. yeah. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I've seen a lot of lot of families out on Sullivan Rock either coming back from an overnight hike with their small kids and they've just gone to Mount Cook because it's fairly flat and it's 7 Ks. Um, And there actually was two kids didn't end to end this year and they're in the Billman Track magazine. I think they were 7 and 10. Mm. Or maybe they were younger. Maybe they were 4 and 7 or something. Right. It was yeah, I was blown away when I saw it because, like, they're kids, like they're gonna walk a thousand kilometers, (laughs) like. But then it just made sense because you know the parents got them into a routine. They knew how long they had to walk. I'm sure there wasn't a perfect day every day, but Mm. there never is when you're walking.
0: I think it's something that you know. On the one hand, you want to you don't want to overdo it, but then also sometimes kids who the kids who are into it can really surprise you by how much they can actually do. Uh, We met a kid who, when we did the Overland, who did the Great Ocean Walk when she was eight. And, you know, they said, the parents said, that probably was about as young as they would suggest going. Probably any younger would have been too young. Mm. But she did it and loved it. And the proof was in the pudding. They were out in Tasmania doing more walking and the kids were all happy doing it.
1: Yeah, I think, yeah, a, a light introduction is probably the best way to get them engaged and kind of, you know see if they really enjoy and if they do then you can say right we'll go longer this time um so some good introduction hikes i think yeah as you said hewitt's hill you can hike in from the camel farm and then if you've got two cars you can park one at mundaring because that second day from hewitt's hill to mundaring would be a lot more interesting to a kid or you can do it in reverse if you think their interest is going to wane anything around sullivan rock you can not necessarily walk the Bibbleman to the Mondanox campsite. You can walk the 4x4 track while not terribly interesting. You can at least see the Mondanox. Mm. And then maybe like a Brookton Highway to Mount Dale. Yeah. Or you can park at Mount Dale and walk around the circuit and then walk down to the Mount Dale campsite. That'd be a good one if you're worried about leaving your car on Brookton Highway. Yeah. Which I know a lot of people ask that question. <laughs>
0: Yeah, um, moving on to the day walks. Well, actually, before you do that, I had a few thoughts in the southwest. Yes. I was thinking the Warren River Loop would actually be a good one because there is, there is a campsite. There are several campsites, actually, along yep. the river. Mm-hmm. And you could do that as a, as a overnight in the southwest. Yeah. Um, and the other one I was thinking might be quite good is the Memang Trail in Fitzgerald River. It's not overly long for an overnight hike. I think it's 15 each way, and, you can, and it can be done in shorter loops. Yep. So that gives a bit of variety, I guess, If for people who want to go get out of Perth and try something. Well, the Warren River Loop is in Warren National Park and uh, the Fitzgerald River National Park for the Mermang Trail.
1: All brilliant ideas. And day walks? Day walks. So in and around Perth, I think there's just so many that are kid-friendly. I think any of the dog-friendly trails as well um, will work for kids because they're generally a bit shorter. Um, Bill's Rapids is going to be a favorite because there's water to play in. Same and, with And pipe. dogs. Yeah, and dogs. <laughs> uh, same with Whistlepipe Gully. Anywhere where the kids can kind of splash around and keep their interest. I know we talked about this on our ABC interview. Um, just, yeah, well, I wouldn't force long hikes on kids early on unless they really enjoy it. Mm. I think you've got to keep it short and sweet and have something there to keep their interest.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, doing something like a return, like Kitty's Gorge Return or Eagle View is probably too much for a child in terms of attention span and abilities, mm-hmm. but then, you know, sometimes you see kids probably, if you did a bit of the Eagle View to maybe where the Rock Lookout is from, from the picnic area, that would be okay, but the full thing is probably a bit much to ask.
1: Mm-hmm. And the same goes for Kitty's Gorge. Um, you can do the Baldwins Bluff Walk, which is, I mean, it's, it's up a hill, but it's six kilometers return and at the end you can visit Serpentine Falls or have a barbecue or something there's anywhere where there's like a good facility for lunch or a bakery I think we'll always keep the kids interested yeah for sure in the southwest I know I did a visit Walpole around Christmas last year and we had my nieces down there and we did a few hikes because there's a lot of really small hikes down there so Valley of the Giants is obviously the big one and the kids will love that because they get to you know, climb up among the trees and there's a walkway and it's very interesting. But around there as well, there's a circular pool, which is only a 500-meter walk. Um, there's the Swarbrick Art Loop, which offers something that I've never seen on a hike before and that's a giant mirror. <laughs> it's always fun if you're a kid to see what's staring back at you. Yeah. And also the giant tingle tree. Um, that's always a fun one because you get to climb under a tree and look up and be amazed, and that's also
0: I think it's about a kilometer long. Mm. Um, one that's not really a, a trail per se oh, I guess it is, but i've I've never written it up because I thought, ah, it's not really a trail is between Green's Pool and Elephant Rock, you can kind of walk across across there mm. and back I mean now there is a bit of a, a walk trail that links the two. But when I was a kid, um, my parents and I used to always whenever we went to El elf and Rocker Greenspool walk between the two of them across the rocks yeah. and that was something that was always a lot of fun. you know you get to see all these granite formations and it's it's inland enough that you're not going to get hit by king waves mm-hmm. and things, as long as you don't go you know right up to the coast yeah. and that was a really fun walk
1: and I also recommend because I know Dunsbury is quite a, a popular school holidays destination. Um, there's a lot of hikes around. The Cape, the Northern Cape. There, the, there's the Cape Naturalist Walk, which is only three k's, and you can go down to a beach a kilometre in and have a bit of a play and set up there, and then continue your walk on. I think that one, and there's a lot around Mealup Beach as well. There's a eight kilometre yeah, one way trail,
0: the meal up Trail, yeah,
1: yeah. Which you don't necessarily have to do all of it. You can just go up and come back and play on the rocks and the water, and you know tailor it to the kids. Yeah, yeah
0: it's kind of like a mini cape to cape mm. so it's you know it's a good one
1: ooh this one came in from Lisa music or no music I'd love ah. to hear your thoughts on this one I think we have differing views on this one Well also differing experiences when we're out on the trail because I used to do a lot of solo hiking and less so now but a lot of your hiking is done with your wife so there's I mean, it's not rude to have music <laughs> in, but normally
0: if you've got company, it's uh, advisable you don't put your headphones in straight away. <laughs> yeah, I, I know what you're saying. I, I, I think it's, I think either or is fine. Sometimes I, I like to not have the headphones in. I find it. I, I have moments of clarity when I hike, especially if it's one of those sort of zone out places where it's, you know, not, it's pleasant and enjoyable, but easy. Mm-hmm. And I kind of enjoy sometimes zoning out and really getting into, I guess sometimes it's like activating imagination, um, and suddenly I have these great ideas. But then you know sometimes I when it's really boring and it's just dull burnt Jarrah forest or something like that, yeah. I wish I had your your favorite section. <laughs> And you, because you hike, do you still hike with a fair bit with headphones?
1: Yeah, if I'm not with people, headphones go in quite a lot, unless it's a new trail. I found, yeah, especially in the last two weeks when I've been out on the trails, didn't even put them in. I had them in the, the backpack, but they never came out. Whereas if I'm on a trail that I've done before and alone, the headphones go in straight away and don't come out unless I'm being polite to say hello to someone. <laughs> <laughs> but even on my, my five-day buildman track experience in june i didn't have the headphones in but i had my portable speakers going from about eight o'clock in the morning till i got into camp and even further it's just nice to have music so i'd either have like soundtracks on in the morning that was a good kind of misty morning moody thing to listen to and then i'd switch to podcasts or audiobooks during the middle of the day and then finish with something just to pep me up for the last five to ten kilometer stretch
0: Mm. i um, really appreciated you having those speakers mark when we did the (laughs) (laughs) did the sterling rich walk (laughs) because our second day the first three hours of the morning was so terrible more actually wasn't it so we didn't leave till
1: 10 we woke up at like six ish yep And yeah, we got out and about of the 10, about 10. So I was trying to fall back asleep and I was like, I'll oh, put the headphones in. I was like, do you want to listen to a podcast? On <laughs> it actually turned out to be a quite depressing one to start with. It was a guy called Bill Simmons interviewing Jake Gyllenhaal and he was talking about a movie done about the Boston Marathon bombings and was getting quite
0: deep into the character. <laughs> and and he also talked about Brokeback. Yeah, Brokeback Mountain. And, and the death, schedule. yeah, yeah. <laughs> which was, you know, it just added to the... And I mean, I think we were, we were on a mountain with horrible weather. Yep, sharing a tent. <laughs> <laughs> and you just think, oh God, what are we doing up here? Yeah.
1: So, that's a good segue into our final question of the pod. Yep. So our final question comes from Paolo, who moved to WA in 2011. And he's originally from the north of Italy. So as a kid, he liked to hike quite a bit. And his question is around the Stirling Range. He's had some experience in the Grampians in Victoria and he's wondering why the Stirling Range is not as developed as the Grampians, which is something we've always discussed, especially when relation to why there're not more trails in WA. You can you give your thoughts on that one, Donna?
0: Yeah. Well, I went to the Grampians last year and the first thing I'll say is that the Grampians is considerably larger than the Stirling Range and a lot of it is is more mountainous because I think the Stirling Range covers quite a lot of range but a lot of it is the the sort of flat ground in between the mountains. And one of the things you see when you when you're there in the Grampians is that you can actually drive up into the mountains whereas in the Stirling Range there's no mountain you can drive up it's just not possible. The mountains the range isn't big enough to do that. And Beyond the fact that there's a size difference, I think that the Grampians also were developed earlier. So what you have is people doing things like, you know, building trails ad hoc through everywhere and it really getting established before people think, hold up, let's actually think about the environmental factors. And due to the biodiversity in the Sterling range, a lot of the, the problems I think we have in WA in terms of trails in the southwest is that they often fail to pass EPA tests you know there are more mountains you can walk and a lot a lot of the mountains in the sterling range beyond the tourist ones are doable but you are rest- restricted from doing it because of the fact that it could spread dieback, and we need to have that that balance between allowing people to do things and getting out there and caring about by the environment because they love going to the mountains and also protecting the landscape from being ruined in the future and I think that that's one of the blessings of the Southwest is the biodiversity. It's, I think in springtime, it's one of the best places to be in Australia, mm. but it also means that we can't have everything that we want, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, I think issue number one will always be dieback in the Stirling range. And it's not an easy one to tackle because there is no cure. So the more activity you get, the more risk you have of dieback spreading and then ruining what is, as you said, a biodiversity hotspot that once it's there, can't be replaced that easily. But I think in terms of attractions that could be there, I think there sh- could be a lot of improvement in terms of not necessarily more trails, but I mean, there's not much in terms of accommodation or cafes or restaurants or anything, mm. which is kind of, it's a very WA thing where people, and Paolo mentioned this, want things as they are. Yeah, it's that's like true. like their backyard, no-one else is coming in here and developing it. I want it the way it is. Like, I just want to be able to take my caravan and go camp there. And I think there also is an element of, is the demand going to be there? Like, do we spend millions of dollars putting in a nice facility at, say, the base of Bluff Knoll where it turns
0: off Chester Pass Road? What if no-one comes? Yeah. It's it's a tricky one because I think the population... You know, every, everyone in the marketing kind of say it's part of, you know, Amazing Albany always used mm. Stirling Range, but it's actually quite far from Albany. You know, it's an hour and a bit from Albany. Mm the town that really is closest is amalup and i think that's like 150 people live there yeah whereas halls gap in victoria have i think 600 people living there so you've immediately got a huge difference in the amount of people living in the areas surrounding mm. the uh, the ranges
1: i think where there's opportunity to develop not necessarily in the Stirling range but close by or close ish by is the Perongarops. and i know that will probably become a bit more of a hot spot in terms of tourism because i mean the land is already cleared which is not ideal, but there's wineries there and there's a new distillery going in. Yeah. And you would hope that that would then encourage more and more people to try and invest in the tourism market down there because it is quite a nice area and it is closer to Albany to try and bring in the tourists. And then from there, it's not too far of a drive to the Stirling Range, which you can kind of have it left as it is, but then still have, you know, development going on in the Prongerops, which is already cleared, so... And I think there's, there needs to be someone look at it at the area and develop some kind of plan, mm. rather than let it develop ad hoc, because that's probably where you'll run into more problems down the line with environmental issues.
0: Yeah, for sure. Because you did you did Magog mm. and a lot of the marketing says, "Oh, there's a lot of you know a lot of trails that go all sorts of different places that's near the nearer to the summit." Yeah. Was that your experience of it, or? Um,
1: no, actually, there was one trail that went off as you did your final push to the summit but it was clear that that wasn't the trail you were meant to follow and there was a wooden marker where you were meant to go and from then on there it was just find the markers. Okay. From what I've read the final kilometer was like a mishmash of terrible trails and you had to pick your own way but I mean I found it quite easy to find the summit. That's good. Um, get. I didn't get lost coming down, but I took the wrong turn because I followed a rock face too far. But it was easy just to backtrack until I saw some kind of marker or tape to put me back down. Yeah, Magog was not easier. It was easier in terms of navigation, um, not necessarily in terms of the physicality of it, than I expected. I was expecting a lot worse, and it was actually quite a lot more pleasant because it was that much easier if that makes yeah. sense
0: because <laughs> that's i mean that was something that we i think we went to that trails forum and there was that guy who was a scientist talking about trail erosion mm. and how it's better that you actually just plan a trail and just just limit the impact on the environment by making it clear which way to go yeah. and that was something that i was always wondered about because i think he mentioned magog as being more eroded than some of the other trails that were more uh Land. i know you said tell you belup yeah also that quite was bad. terrible
1: yeah yeah i think it, magog's very similar to tell you bilup, um in that it's very steep and it is kind of once people start using it, it is hard to control that erosion mm. and especially if it's that steep and you've got kind of small thickets either side people do use those to prop themselves up and lower themselves down so that kind of is shaking the soil out of the root systems a bit more but yeah i mean it was eroded but it wasn't as bad as tell you up mm. and that's it, quite bad tell you up yeah and in terms of when you reach the summit i could see why you'd easily get confused sometimes um and i'm sure there's one section where you're literally looking would be west and there's a rock spire pointing towards the sky and you think oh no i've got to go up that because there's a drop like it's on the the rock face looking straight down you think oh no I've got to go up there and I'm sure there are a few people that have done that thinking that's the way but you look to the right and there's a, an easier way up mm. but I think yeah if it had better marker systems than it currently does I mean like the, the other peaks have the metal poles with the, the markers on mm. and you don't get that at Mount Magog so I think if they had that more prevalent it'd probably be a lot better for the environment
0: mm. I guess the other thing speaking about you know for the environment the sterling ridge walk because i think we both found elements of it a bit annoying they i think that they've tried to keep it wild because of the, the whole wilderness theme, but i question whether that's actually better for the environment than if they actually made it more clear which way to go yeah as we've already said we didn't make it the whole way through we planned it over three
1: days Day one was meant to be fine. This was planned months in advance. Mm. We had an allowance for bad weather, but it was, what, two mils forecast? Yeah. Which you can get by, but what we encountered was ridiculous. It was far worse than like, two mils. <laughs> we got to camp on the first day about, what, six o'clock? Yep. And the wind had started to pick up, and then we were in the tent by 7.30, just because it was windy and rainy, and... I woke up quite a few times during the night and it was always strong winds and rain, mm. no matter what the time was. And what did we, about 10 o'clock set off? Because there was a, we eventually got a 45 minute gap in the weather that was still pretty bad, but it was, you know, good enough that we could continue we on. We could see some sun. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah. It just... And then it got worse and worse and worse. And we were in this hunched in this tiny little cave and we, had to make a decision because we had first arrow coming up which is not the easiest to navigate according mm. to the the guides and the maps yeah and we had someone else with us and we all decided it was probably better with no phone reception to head back to bluff knoll yeah which i don't regret that decision no, it was uh, terrible weather and it did clear up what like one thirty, two o'clock yeah
0: but it still was when we got to back to bluff knoll it was so windy up it the was,
1: top yeah and there's one moment where just before we turned around, I was being blown towards the edge <laughs> of a cliff that I couldn't see down and it was slippery and I just looked
0: back at you. And I was just like... Mmm. And and I have to say that Mark's one of the most sure-footed people I know. So when Mark turned around and looked at me, I was like, oh, I thought, okay, I think we need to probably yeah, call and it a day. I mean, even when we got back to
1: Bluff, no, there was no one at the summit... I don't think we'd passed anyone going down. And not a was single. in the afternoon as mm. well, so you'd think people would be trying to get the nice sun. And what we thought was the the waterfall that's kind of almost there in winter and spring was actually not the correct waterfall. It just popped up overnight. And mm. we saw so many, like when the weather did clear up every now and then, there'd be waterfalls everywhere. I wonder how much rain actually got that dirt. That night
0: yeah and the, I think the worst thing was the wind because I think we could have dealt with the rain yeah
1: rain is not a problem but there was strong strong winds and I'll probably post a couple of videos
0: that I took <laughs> while we were trying to fight our way through the scrub because we we found out it was about 40 kilometer an hour winds near um at Mount Trio yeah camp.
1: yeah so um, I would have guessed it would have been 60 to 80 kilometer hour yeah with gusts a bit higher Mm easily
0: and the, the thing was we were tricked we were tricked by the excellent weather yeah. on the Monday because the Monday weather was probably—if you had that every day of the walk—you'd say this is perfect weather. Yeah, it was brilliant. But there was probably a window of Wednesday, Thursday, Friday where mm-hmm. it was subpar, but w- would have been good the whole way. Yeah, but that's one of those. Things. That's what. That's yeah. how it goes, and and we didn't really feel like starting again. <laughs> no, but yeah, going back to the actual trail itself.
1: I just think it's it would not be that hard just to mark it properly not even like they're not Billman standard marking but here's a pain point go this way yeah because we got lost twice on the first day quite not badly but we were at a, a pretty big impasse as to where do we
0: go I think the first one was actually really dangerous yeah so we kind
1: of what was it East Peak so we made it to East Peak fine Relatively fine. And then we kind of kept going down the trail when we should have turned left. Mm. And then we'll basically add a cliff face trying to pick our way through. And that was one of the points where I was generally like, this is dangerous. Like, if someone falls, that's it. If someone slips, they're dead.
0: Yeah. We went down a gully that looked like it was the way to go,
1: but it just led to a drop. (laughs) that, that was our second mistake. And going back the other way, you could easily see why we went that way mm. and there was two bits of blue tape on either side where you were meant to turn but how are you meant to know what that blue tape's for? Yeah, And that's where all it takes is an arrow pointing that direction and the trail would have been easy to find pretty much to the campsite. Mm. I mean, you're not going to get around a thick scrub issue a lot of the time but it, again, it comes down to what we took looked like a marked trail. Yeah. And it was for a little bit until it kind of ran out And we had to, luckily, found a
0: a trail that led back to where we're meant to be. Yeah, where other people had obviously made the same mistake.
1: Yeah, because we saw a rock can down in the gully. So I was like, great, we're going in the right direction. Yeah. (laughs) Which is, yeah, not the case.
0: And I think, you know, one of the reasons they give for not having it marked is because they say they want to maintain the wilderness values of the area but i actually think that a counter argument to that is that because they have so many of these goat trails going everywhere is that they're probably spreading die back mm. they're probably creating more risk as a result of it and they're also limiting well well they're limiting the safety and the uh sustainability of of actually using the range mm. and i think that there were certain areas where i I feel like dieback probably already is in the mountains they looked a bit less vibrant than some other areas yeah and it's yeah i think it's one of those things where it would be better if there was a was a marked trail because there is a trail basically the whole way there is a trail to go
1: yeah you can see it and especially when we reach kind of the end of day one you'd pick a trail and be like is this the right one it's like I'm not sure and then two seconds later it would join up with another trail which is like not what you want in terms of environmental impact no and I mean they always say if the trail is well defined up there it's probably the wrong one because people have had to double back on it (laughs) yeah and again it's just like it's it's just confusing unnecessarily Mm. when all it takes is yeah, you know, a bit of bit of clearing on one section,
0: and I'm not talking about a lot. It's just enough for you to be able to see where the trail is. Yeah. You know, the, the, the Stirling Range is often compared to the sort of difficult traverses in the West Arthurs or East Arthurs in uh, Southwest National Park. But one of the things that Tasmania has done is they've gone, well, look, people are going to be doing this walk. What can we do to minimize the impact on the environment? And they've looked at things like putting tent platforms toilets and things like that just to limit the impact on the environment they they actually don't really care about the commodities for people to make it more easy for them yeah but it's about what that impact has because if you have tent sites then people aren't going to clear spaces Hmm. if you have toilets people aren't going to be digging holes everywhere Hmm. and i think one of the things that is really important that would make the stilling ridge walk more manageable would be i think we talked a lot about it in terms of water tanks on there Yeah, because
1: I mean, it's not necessarily even like carrying our own water was no issue. Mm. It's what happens if you get to a point and there's a day of bad weather, like you can't just hold out for a day because you've only got limited water. Mm. I think that would be the big safety issue. And again, it would make it slightly more enjoyable if you didn't have to carry eight to nine litres of water, depending on what yeah. time of year you did it.
0: How much did we carry? We carried about I carried eight. Eight, yeah.
1: And, and again, I, I probably overestimated. I think that second day I drank maybe two or 300 meals for the eight kilometres back. Mm. But, I mean, it was cold and windy and... I just wanted to get back to the car. <laughs> and I think we could easily have refilled on that day because it was so rainy yeah, and wet. Yeah, exactly. But you can't always rely on that, especially that first day when we're like, oh, we're at the waterfall, let's... Like I cracked open one of my bottles and I drank as much as I could just because I could refill it there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, as we said, you can't always rely on rain or water in the, the Stirling Range.
0: So I guess that's a sort of long answer to yeah. why, why Stirling Range not developed? <laughs> and it is something we'll explore later
1: on a podcast. We are looking to have um, a prominent men- member of the DBCA in joining us as one of our guests. So maybe he'll be able to give a, um, an official reason or explanation as to why um, mm. why it is the way it is yeah
0: i think maybe as a as a an aside to that even though the grampians looks a lot like the sterling range they have similar kind of mountain formations maybe the better comparison to make would be somewhere like karagini where there is a lot of facilities mm. they have a high, much higher visitor numbers than sterling range do and they have those things, they've got restaurants, they've got bars, they've got a lot of camping sites, then they've got every, everything ranging from tent sites to, you know, eco-tents. Eco mm. And that's probably a, a site that has been developed in that way, mm. that encourages more visitors. Whereas I think perhaps because the Stirling Range isn't too far from Albany, people can stay in Albany and make day trips out. Whereas the Grampians is a bit of a drive from, from Melbourne, mm. and that maybe has made a difference. Yeah, I think same goes with Karajini. It's like you plan to stay there, you
1: don't plan to stay anywhere else.
0: Yeah, it's two days to get there, so what yeah. are you gonna do? You need yeah, to stay there. Exactly.
1: And it's yeah, it's no it's too far away from is it, Caratha for that to be a day trip. So it's oh, about five def- hours round trip, isn't it?
0: Definitely, yeah. yeah. I think more than five, I think. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Alright. Thank you very much for listening to podcast number four. Keep the questions flowing because we will answer them again in another Q&A pod. So the email address is realtrailtalk at gmail.com or you can just shoot us a, a message via Facebook or Instagram. Thank you for listening.